In recent weeks, we've been tracking the theme of the city as it unfolds in the book of Genesis. I intended to move to the book of Deuteronomy today, and I apologize to those of you who diligently read the text the week before the sermon. May God increase your tribe, but um, and many do, and do so well with meditation. We're grateful for that, but I am... I apologize to you. I am going to stay in Genesis as God believes. I don't know what he believes, but I think for one more week. But uh, seriously, I thought about the city of man. How do you skip Sodom? So we're going to stay with Lot and his choice here for one more week, and then we'll get back to the text that was intended for today. Let's bow for prayer as we turn to Genesis chapter 18, Dave has read the first part of this chapter and just encourage you to keep that in mind as to the setting here and we'll come to 18 and verse 22 here in just a few moments. But let's again seek the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you for this theme of the city and we see how it weaves its way throughout the pages of Scripture and just provides for us another way of seeing your glories. Another theme that just draws together and ties together what you are doing through your redemptive purposes. I pray for those that have not been part of this series that you'll help them to merge in here for um, those who have that more light will come to us. For each one of us who knows Christ that this will be a time of feeding upon your word and coming together as an assembly, and for those who are outside of Christ, may you draw them to Jesus today and to his salvation, for we are in desperate need. And I pray that that need would be made clear. Help us as we labor in the text today. Be glorified, we pray, and teach us by your Spirit. Through Jesus we ask it. Amen. As creatures made in God's image, we all have a category for outcry, that leads to overthrow. Outcry that leads to overthrow. This line was crossed for a remarkably high percentage of U.S. citizens in the Gulf War of the early 1990s. Iraq's dictator, Saddam Hussein, decided that he was going to invade a sovereign nation, Kuwait, and take their possessions and kill their people and take all the resources for himself. And there was an outcry among the nations. An outcry that demanded overthrow. U.S. and her allies said no to Saddam's regime. He was eventually captured and executed for monstrous war crimes and for so much of what he had done that was wrong through the years. To varying degrees in smaller ways, we cross those lines all the time. You've had that experience probably fairly recently. A foundation is discovered embezzling funds. And you read about it and you hear this horrible misuse of money and people's trust and you say what? Shut it down. That's the end of that foundation. That's the end of all the people who are leading that thing. A social worker is discovered to be a serial abuser of children. And there's an outcry from our community, from our lost neighbors and friends. And what do we say? 
end that man's job and put him in prison. That's where he belongs. A woman, we find, tortures her children. And there is an outcry. People are just outraged, rejoicing when authorities sweep in and take those children out of the home and take them away from their mother. A manufacturer knowingly poisons people to increase its profits, and we are rightly outraged, and we say, enough, this must stop. Never in this does it cross our mind that we're being unloving. It doesn't cross our mind that we're being unfair. That this is some weakness in us. When we see the outcry, we see a situation which leads to outcry and we want it to be overthrown, this makes good sense to us. We realize there's more to us as human beings than simply love and grace and compassion. We're deeper than that. And there are times when we stand up and say, enough. That outcry, when evil must be stopped for the good of our communities, our societies, our world, that outcry against evil that justifies overthrowing the guilty, that DNA comes from God. The feeling you get when you see horrific evil and you rejoice when it is shut down, that sense of rightness, that sense of almost release, that this is good, this is right, that feeling is a glimmer of the perfect judgment of a holy God against sin. Now our standard, we've got to understand, our standard is immeasurably weaker than God's standard because we are sinners and He is not. So people read of God's judgment in the pages of Scripture, and what do they say? How could God be so cruel? How could God be so unloving as to judge someone like this, to judge a city like this? How cruel. But when we say that, we are simply like one child abuser objecting to the prosecution of other child abusers. When we think of it in light of a perfect, holy God, that sense that you feel of justice served for Him is infinitely higher. And it touches not just the sins you don't like, it touches sin, period. He hates it all. His character is opposed to it all. The deep aversion, the horror that we sense when someone has misused someone else, when there is some injustice that is taking place in the world, we can only begin to touch the horror of God against sin. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. And he hates it. As we return to our series tracking the two cities, we must recognize at the outset that God has every right and is wholly justified to crush any city that is formulated in rebellion against him. We struggle to get that because we are sinners. 
but he is holy and he has every right. The arrogant Tower of Babel perpetuating its false religion in defiance of God, the only right thing to do was shut it down and scatter the people. But what we have not yet considered in this series on the city is this reality. As God aims His drawn, fully drawn bow with a flaming arrow at the rebellious city, His people are in it. They're in that city. They're mixed in. They're a minority. Sometimes there aren't any, but sometimes there's just a few, but they're there. And it creates something of a friendly fire situation in which the judgment that should fall on the godless, that God's justice is just holding that arrow back for who knows why, but He just won't let it go yet, as He sits there poised to judge the city rightly and justly, And everything in us that ever rejoices in that scenario for God that is overwhelmingly infinite as He seeks to judge that city, but He looks down and He sees His people there too. And that's the only reason you're sitting here today. That's the only reason I'm here or this nation would have been long gone. How are we to think about the city of man and God's people who dwell here, in that city? We encounter this problem as we come to Genesis 18. Abram, remember, Abraham now as we come to this chapter and Lot have separated just to get our bearings on the map here toward the south of this map. Our situation will take place in this particular territory. And we notice here, first of all, beginning with verse 22, and we'll look back just a little bit at what precedes, but Abraham Abraham intercedes for man's city in the interest of God's people. So Abraham here uh, at Hebron, and Lot has gone down here on the map to the south end of the Dead Sea. We assume there is some... A question as to where Sodom is. I, uh, I think there's some evidences that it's buried in the Dead Sea at the south end, and I'm living for the day and hope that uh, if it happens, we get to see it uncovered down there and discovered there, but perhaps never until uh, Christ sets things right. I don't know, but at any rate, we're going to just locate it down there on the map. At verse 22 then we read with this in view that the men turned from there and went down and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So these two angels journeying from Abraham's tent in Hebron down in elevation to the fertile plain that Lot had chosen down there by the city of Sodom. Abraham remains with the third visitor, the Lord in the flesh, And God's mission has been made very clear. We read that earlier today at verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The outcry, a cry for divine justice. 
Abel's blood, Genesis 4.10, cried out from the earth. It cried out from the ground for justice, for this tyranny to be addressed as Cain murders Abel. God is not, of course, here literally seeking unknown information. I'm going to go down there and discover what I don't know. He is accommodating himself to the situation in which he is appearing as a man in the flesh. And so eating with Abraham and talking to Abraham, he just speaks that way of going down and discerning whether or not this city is as bad as people are saying. All of this, in a sense, just taking on the position of a human being. God never actually even goes to Sodom. There's obviously no need for that. But he's relating to Abraham in a manner that allows Abraham to participate in God's work. Verse 23 Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Here's the friendly fire problem. Will you do that? Notice he doesn't say, Are you right to sweep away the wicked? He says, rather, Is it right to sweep away your people in the process of rightly judging the wicked? That's his question. Abraham knows the outcry against Sodom will compel the holy God to overthrow the city. There's really no other possibility. Sodom is merely an iteration of the city of Babel, a remaking of the city of Cain. It's entirely right to destroy it. But Abraham is asking God, should you? Not is it right to, but should you? In destroying the godless, Destroy the righteous. Should they be hit with friendly fire? God, please consider this. Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Abraham does not again defend the city of Sodom, but notice here that he pleads to spare it. We don't know what's going on in Abraham's mind. We're not sure why he doesn't think where God's leading in all of this, but he says, will you spare it? Not just the righteous in it, but will you spare the city because of the righteous connected to it? Why does Abraham pray this God's mercy this way upon Sodom? All we know is verse 25 that the argument that he gives here is that it would be far from God to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's pretty bold, Abraham. I mean, it's really bold. Far be it from you. It would be a detestable thing. It would be a profane thing, the Hebrew word indicates. This would mar your reputation. The point is not it would be evil for you to take the life of a righteous person. That's not what he's saying. In that case, Abraham would have started at one. Abraham knows God is the author of life and has every right to take any of us home at any moment. He's pleading for the city. He's pleading for mercy. And the key is God's character. He is the judge. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What is happening here is a definition of prayer. What's playing out in front of us is an understanding of what prayer is. And we could say it this way. Prayer is a reverent argument with God that contends for the glory of His name. Prayer is a reverent argument with God 
that contends for the glory of His name. That asks God to act in a way that magnifies His greatness and His goodness. This past Wednesday night, we prayed to that end as missionary Phil Hunt was here representing the work in Zambia. And we pleaded with God in prayer, may people see the true gospel. May they see the true gospel. That's contending for the glory of God. An argument there. They don't see your glory. There are people lost in sin. Bring the truth to them. Bring them forward. These types of prayers, a reverent argument with God that contends for the glory of His name. This is not, in Abraham's part, fatalism. God knows what's going to happen. He already knows what's going to happen in Sodom. I just stand back. I've got nothing to do with it. God has His his ways. He's made His decisions. Why should I get involved? We see none of that here. And if we take that thought, we're not thinking about prayer biblically. It's not demanding either. It is reverent argument. Abraham thoughtfully, zealously negotiates with God for the city of Sodom and for God's glory. Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The whole city saved. For the sake of the 50. God knows what he's going to do. But he nearly baits Abraham to continue in prayer. God heard what I said. So Abraham, verse 27, answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. There's the reverence. There's the humility. Not a demanding spirit, but suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? I mean, it, it's, it's almost humorous. Now he's brought it down. It's not the 50, it's just the five. We're just going to reduce this by five. Just for them, would you destroy the city? I will not. I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29, again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham prays, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. A couple of things just by note here. It's the Lord who ends the conversation. Abraham's not done, but God is done. Why does he stop at ten? We don't know. Maybe body message was saying God was done. And Abraham just catches him before he turns and leaves and says one more time, for ten, God will not destroy the city. We notice here again the play between the city of man and the city of God. 
The city of Babel, they stood up and said, we want to make a name for ourselves. Abraham is praying and pleading here. The one who builds altars, he's praying for God's name, for the glory of his name. And we note that the city of Sodom is in God's hands to do with as he chooses, but in a real sense, the city of Sodom is in Abraham's hands. God drawing him in here to pray in this way, the whole city is in the care of Abraham, who's not even there. And I think it is right for us to apply and say that when God sees America, He sees a nation that deserves His judgment. Every molecule that we have that cries out for justice in situations where we all see it so clearly, again, multiply it infinitely, and that's how God looks at this nation. It is ripe for judgment. We are a nation in rebellion against God. But as God looks down, what He sees also is us. We don't say that proudly, boastfully. We say that by God's electing grace, by His mercies upon His people that looks down for no merit of ours and says, there is my child in that midst. What God sees is us. And when we gather together here on the Lord's Day, as Rich led us in prayer here just a few moments ago, this assembly gathered here for prayer is lifting up prayers to the Lord that are sparing this nation. I really believe that. When we gather in small groups on Wednesday night and pray, when you gather in small Bible studies and we pray together, pray for this nation, pray for the safety of the city, pray for the cities of this world, God hears. He's never been impressed by percentages, right? You could do a whole sermon series on that, how God is not impressed with percentages. He doesn't care how few we are. He cares how we pray. And He is calling us, even here, to pour out our prayers for our nation, for the cities of this earth, that God's people would be spared. And we know on this side of the cross that we also pray that the message of the gospel would continue to reach people lost in sin. It's a prayer of mercy for the nations. We as God's people serving the city of God, praying for the city of man. Pray. As God's people, we should pray for this prosperity, not as an end in itself, but for the sake of His people and the spread of the gospel. As we move to chapter 19, God extricates His people from man's city. So we have Abraham praying for the city of man, now God drawing His people from that city. This, for reasons unknown, Abraham did not ever envision. But the two angels, chapter 19, came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. When you, then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. That would be partially Minnesotan there. 
being offered something and saying no. You got to say no once, right? It's just uh, no. We're we're going to stay right here. But verse three, he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him, and he entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. I don't think it's a mistake they're eating here. We just saw Abraham eating at his tent, entertaining the Lord. Now these two angels being entertained by Lot, but we are not in Hebron, folks. This is Sodom, and it's a whole different deal. In the ancient setting, the hospitality was seen as a sacred responsibility. You staked your entire reputation on protecting your visitors. That's the way it was. We don't get that, but that's the way it was, and we need to understand that. And we see here a couple of interesting notes, and that's a lot, first of all, is at the city gate, the place of business and commerce and government. He has a place of some level of interaction with the city, if not even some level of importance in the city. And did you catch it? He has a house there. That's not where we left him in chapter 13. He just had a tent that was looking toward Sodom. Now he has a house in the city. At least, Lot extends gracious hospitality to his visitors. There's going to be a contrast here that is very sharp as we follow the Sodomites. But verse 4, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came in to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The last man, let's remember ancient cities, the only issue was just that it had a wall around it. They were off very small, not many people involved here, but those that were of age, the men of the city, out for a night of entertainment with these visitors. We want to know them. That is, their desires to sexually use these men, passing them from one to another through the night. It's a horrific scene. If the two men lived through the night or not, was no concern of the men of Sodom. They were looking for something new, something different. Their desire is purely self-oriented, glandular, and egregiously rebellious against God. And as a righteous man, Lot cannot stand idly by. As a protector, as a host, he cannot stand idly by. And so verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Lot looks pretty good right about now, doesn't he? But verse 8, he says, Behold, I have two daughters. I have two daughters. They've not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What horror! What utter horror! emotional to me is I just have a daughter that's it I mean just to think of that to take your two daughters and say to these men here you can have them he 
He's got only one choice, he thinks, and that's to protect his visitors or to protect his daughters. Under the cultural expectations of the day, Lot makes what he believes to be the better of the two options. Better to give his daughters to these wicked men than to permit them to slake their homosexual passions. To concede the homosexual designs of these sodomites at the expense of his home guests would be worse than turning his daughters over to be gang raped. The only honorable option for Lot is to die defending his visitors and to die defending his daughters. This is not what Lot was thinking when he signed up to live in Sodom. He didn't want to see himself ever get into a situation like this. But the truth is that living in Sodom places Lot in a terrible dilemma and he makes the wicked choice to turn his own flesh and blood over to these animals. It's horrifying. Lot sat in the city gate. He had a home there. And he was accepted right up until the moment that he designed to resist their wickedness. Then he finds out his real standing in the city of man. Verse 9, they say what? Stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. What horror. Let's, let's stop on this for a moment. The city of God how does it see sexuality? God is the creator, the designer of the beautiful gift of sexuality. That gift to be enjoyed, to be what it is meant to be, is to be reserved for a lifelong monogamous heterosexual marriage union. A covenant between a man and a woman for life. The city of man, in contrast, there's a rebellion against that standard at every turn and in virtually every way. There is a pushing against God's law. And the attack that we are receiving more and more these days is you hate homosexual people. Well, let's always keep our answer in view. We do not hate. We should not hate. The issue is this. We have a high standard of sexuality that renders us equally opposed to adultery, to pornography, to premarital sex, to living together out of wedlock, and yes, to homosexual relationships and transgender decisions and the like. But what, it, what the world wants to do to put it all down into just some abuse minority is really our view of sexuality as a whole. Now, we will say that there is some uniqueness to the level of sexual perversion, whatever it is, and it goes further than homosexuality. But there is, we recognize, authority in the Word of God. 
And in what God has said, there is a responsibility for us as His people to obey that word, to honor that word, no matter what the culture says. It's not hatred. We know it's not hatred. It is simply bringing ourselves under the law of God for the good of everyone. An NPR reporter some time ago spoke of his explorations in the land of Israel, and he spoke of this passage, God's judgment on Sodom, and he, he described it as for, quote, unnamed sins. Unnamed sins. And that's about as graciously as the world can get around it, but that's what you call getting around it. We need to face the text squarely and faithfully. This isn't an unnamed sin. Jude 7 makes that so clear. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It's really not difficult to understand the text. The problem is we don't want to believe the text. And so a person can read a verse like this and say that it's unnamed or ignore a verse like this. Now, what I want to say to us here is to recognize that kind of opposition is natural to the city of man. We should expect it. The city of man will oppose our obedience to God's law in the area of sexuality. This is how it has always been. Why is this such a big deal? First of all, because of the authority of God's Word. But I think secondly, God designed sexuality as a key indicator of our willingness to submit to His will and to sacrifice our fleshly desires on the altar of His glory. There are capacities that He gives to us naturally as men and women in this world, and it is a test of that single adult of fidelity to God to submit to His law against what nature may desire. It is a test of a married couple that may have many desires to move outside of that narrow box and to experiment sexuality in other places, in other ways. It is a test of our fidelity to God. And by the way, you're listening to and I'm talking to sinners. We fail and we're reminded of just how unloyal we are to God through the stretch of our lives and as God by His mercy sanctifies us, we continue to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We continue to address it and look at it, but it is just always a reminder, I'm not Jesus Christ. I am fallen in sin. And through His redemptive purpose, I have continual work to do, some more than others, but all on some level. This is a test of our devotion to Christ. And so it's a big deal. We're not out to get anybody. We're out to kill sin in ourselves and to call sinners to repentance that they may know the joy of salvation in Christ and freedom from sexual deviance. So the local church is to be a place where we combat sexual sin in a right way, but we must take a stand against all deviance from God's law. 
And so the church is to be a place of grace, a place of forgiveness of sexual sin of all types. We come as broken people. We come as those who have broken the law of God in this regard. And we recognize that with one another, working with each other to bring one another forward and to follow God's will in this. So we talk about it. We interact on it. We forgive. Or God forgives as we repent and we bless one another. It's to be a safe zone, the local church, to talk about such temptations and failures. It's to be a safe zone to talk about sexual suffering at the hands of others. That's a conversation that we can have because we know this is part of our sanctification. There's a right way to have that conversation. There's a wrong way to have that conversation, but there's a right way. And the church is a place for that right conversation. And never is the local church to be a place of protection for those who violate God's will without repentance. The church is no forum for airing every sexually deviant experience. That is not sanctifying. It's not helpful to anybody. But on the other hand, the local church must never serve Satan's purposes by covering up and hiding sexual sin in a way that displeases God. God's view of the local church is what matters. Not even personal view. It's the view that God sees as He looks at His people. And this is why He gives to us church discipline, among other things. But church discipline is meant for the church to be able to respond to unrepentant sin in its midst. And to never say, we have no recourse All we can do is protect. All we can do is just be gracious to someone who is caught in sin. No, what we can do is stand and speak for heaven. This is wrong. And you find no quarter here. None at all. We have a clear, straightforward calling in this regard to maintain the highest standard of fidelity to God's will and to His glory in this area. At a few elders' meetings through the years, I have prayed. I never asked permission for this prayer, but I've prayed that God would kill us before any of us committed adultery that He would kill us before any of us hurt a child. They've never pushed back. We don't pray that for everyone else, but pray it for yourself. Pray it that God would just take me out before I bring dishonor to His name. It's a prayer we should have, but of course, all of that looking toward What we need to do is change, not die. But do you have that spirit? Sexual sin is never unforgivable. And it is never the end of the world. But repentance is everything. We must see sexual sin for what it is, not allow our culture's propaganda to weaken our beliefs or our resolve to pursue purity individually and as a local church within a context of grace and forgiveness, 
but within the context of a people of God that stands and says, there's no room to protect against those who violate the law of God. Well, we move on. And the angels have had enough of Lot's handling of the situation. Verse 10, they reached out their hands, they brought Lot into the house with them, they shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And if it were possible to see the arena of angels and demons surrounding this scene, the angels are rejoicing that these men have been struck with blindness. They are celebrating within, this is right, this is good, and the demons are raging. Who do you think you are? What are you doing here? Give them their freedoms. It's who they are. It's how they're made. It's what they want. Step away. But God is sovereign and leaves them groping for the door, probably in a mode of temporary blindness. Then the angels begin to really extricate the righteous to deliver them, beginning at verse 12. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? These two angels. Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against His people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. I think, honestly, that was the point in the beginning. He sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, whether those two that we've met or other daughters we don't know, but he says, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They have a false sense of security. There's no fear of God in their hearts. None. Oh, that's a stupid idea. Relax, Lot. You and your righteous ways get all uptight. Just relax. Abraham convinced Lot to leave Ur with him to follow God's call, but Lot is unable to convince his sons-in-law. Sodom is clearly corrupt to the core. Verse 15, as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. I mean, it, if it wasn't so serious, it'd be just downright hilarious. He's grabbing them by the hand. Come on, little boy. You got to get out of here. The Lord being merciful to him. That's an understatement. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And they brought them out. One, as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Sodom had wrapped its tentacles around Lot. And he struggles to leave. He stands in the crosshairs of God's judgment. And yet he must be drugged by the hand out of the city. Let's us know the pull of the city on the people of God. Verse 18, And Lot said to them, O oh no, my lords, 
Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. I mean, why? Lot doesn't just get struck down by lightning right there. It's amazing. He says to him, verse 21, Behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Small, tiny little place. Why can he not do anything? Because God has sovereignly protected Lot. And probably ultimately due to his relationship with Abraham. Well, then third, the third movement, God destroys man's city in judgment. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities that grew on the ground. And what grew on the ground? Usually, God's intervention in such situations is not miraculous other than in its timing, perhaps. But this is an area where there's a lot of fissures in the earth and earthquakes are fairly common. And it is very likely, it would seem, that the earth opens up and that the trapped gases and the asphalt, the petroleum that was down in the earth, shot to the sky, ignited by lightning and rains fired down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. This has happened in other places at other times, this very thing. And this whole area is wiped out. Geological evidences in this area today even point to a catastrophic event at this time. The destruction captures also Lot's wife, verse 26. Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. We don't really know why, but some type of longing, whatever the case, she disobeyed the will of God that he had stated clearly through his angels. And she is killed with her sons-in-law. And this brings us back then to the praying, Abraham, verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. His heart must have fallen. He has no idea that Lot has been spared from anything that we know. God did remember Lot. But when it comes to the real issue here in these verses, it's not that God remembered Lot, it's that God remembered Abraham. Abraham's prayers in behalf of the righteous were the means that God used to deliver Lot from destruction with Sodom. So it was, verse 29, that God overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This narrative gives us an important glimpse 
the interaction between God's city and man's city. And it's very lively and applicable to us because of that very thing. We, as God's people, live in man's city. How do we relate to that situation? We have Abraham at Hebron building an altar, relying on the promise of God of this land. We have Lot entangled with the world, and there's much danger there and sin. Is the point then of this narrative that we're to escape the city? No, I think what we see here rather is the early, murky, black and white images of this interaction. And it's got a long development to come. On this side of the cross, Genesis 12, 1-3 takes on full color. We realize that the blessing upon the nations is through Jesus Christ. This passage unfolds in full bloom in the New Testament and it commends to us three points of exhortation. I'll hurry through them. But as God's people, we must pray for the city. Not merely for the protection of the righteous, but for the protection of the righteous as they proclaim the gospel. On this side of the cross, that's the agenda. Now the prayers for the city take on this heightened meaning No one should care about the prosperity of man's city more than we care about it. At least care for all the right reasons. The advance of the gospel is everything here. Pray for the gospel to transform the cities of the world. And if we don't pray for that, who is going to do so? Never underestimate the significance God attaches to the righteous few. God sees, scattered across this land, born of the Spirit, Bible-honoring people who are praying as the salt of the earth. Join them. Be part of them. May our prayers together as a church be that which protects the great cities of this world. How small we are, but we have access to the King of Kings. Pray. Elevate your prayers, in fact. It's good to pray for one another's illnesses and weaknesses and problems. It's good to pray for our own that way. But we need to elevate our prayers to see larger, to see the bigger picture of what God's doing in this world, how He's moving through the nations and how He is bringing a people to Himself. Pray to that end. Pray for the safety of the cities. Pray for the mercy of God to allow the gospel to continue to spread from those cities out to regions beyond. Pray for the conversion of the nations. It's in our bulletin each week, not as a ritual. It's in our bulletin each week that it would become our focus to narrow in on that region of the world and to pray that God would save His people. Pray in small groups on Wednesday nights. Pray in small groups as you get together as God's people. Pray on Sunday morning knowing that these prayers lift the city before the Lord. And in daily life, do you have a habit of praying for the gospel spread to the urban centers of the planet and to the regions beyond? Do you pray for that spread? Are you, like Abraham, joining with God and arguing reverently, that he would contend for his glory. Pray for the protection of our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ in hostile lands. They suffer the fruit of sin. 
Secondly, as God's people, we must stand for righteousness in the city. This isn't a safe enterprise. It's complicated. It's risky. It can be dangerous. And for many, it is extremely dangerous. But this homosexual matter that we're dealing with as a culture now bleeding off toward the transgender issues, statistical evidence indicates that the evangelical church is progressively accepting such sexuality as natural. It's okay. Gospel-believing people are beginning to change their mind on this issue. Let me tell you, that's a simple thing to see. It's not the Bible that's convincing them. It's the culture. Lot had to stand in this situation against his culture and it put him in great danger. We, who do we think we are that it's going to be different for us? And it may get really intense. A simple reading of Romans 1 of Jude's seven as we've read already here would indicate that God hasn't changed his mind it's not some vindictive agenda in the old testament God is still God and whether we find it a warm reception or a dangerous one we need to graciously stand for the truth because God said it that's the issue hatred toward no one Love and obedience toward the Lord. That's our way forward. But expect no love for man's city. We will be marginalized. We will be belittled. We will be misused. We will be persecuted. That is just a given. Number three, as God's people, we must trust in the justice of God. We must trust in the justice of God. We can trust in the justice of God. Will the judge of all the earth do right? We must answer with bold confidence, yes, always. Always. God always does right. Count on it. Trust in that solid ground. He will not act as you expect Him to act. He will not act according to your timing very often. But He will, in the end, always be sure that justice prevails. And we know that that justice has been ultimately on this side of the cross shown in its full form at the cross. There, Jesus Christ, the substitutionary Lamb of God, taking our place, bears the weight of this holy anger of God against sin. And He suffers in our place that judgment. He rises from the dead, defeating the penalty of sin. And that is, in that moment, as He is on the cross there, the ultimate friendly fire situation. But will the judge of the earth do right? He has. Look at the cross and know that He always will. Justice served. And out of that justice, as God the Father pours out His wrath upon the Son, out of that wrath, comes a prized possession. And Christian, that's you. That's me as we've come to know Christ as our Savior, as we are now called the children of God. We are His prized possession. Take pride in that? No, we just say thank you. 
Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for choosing me, a broken, sinful rebel against your city. But in your grace, you've reached down to me and you've given me life in Christ. I have this life in him. And now, as your prized possession, I plead with you, protect the cities. As a friend of God, we interact with and intercede for the city. As a friend of God, we pray that his name would be proclaimed, that the gospel would be honored. We know there's, a, there's an ache in our heart because we know it's going to end bad before it ends good. There is a judgment coming. What happened to Sodom is just a prophecy of what is going to happen to this world. But for now, we pray, we intercede for God, knowing that one day that judgment will justly fall. And knowing that on that day, we will be glad of one thing, that we are the prized possession of God, the friend of God, who enters into his presence through our prayers through life. We demonstrate our relationship with him. We trust in the work that Christ has done. And we pass out of the judgment into the rescue that Christ provides. How rich we are. And how sincerely and earnestly we should pray. Lord, to this end, we pray for Burnsville. We pray for the United States. We pray for her great cities and her furthest rural reaches. We pray for the great cities of this world and plead that you might reserve your judgment For the glory of your name, permit more and more to hear of Christ crucified and risen. And even draw in here, we pray today, anyone who's in the crosshairs of your judging fire. Bring them out from death to life. Bring them out to see your call of mercy. By your grace, draw us all in as your people. Through Jesus we pray.